since January this year, 44% of all the content we removed has been self-generated. And by that, we mean this is content where children are in their bedrooms and domestic settings. They've got a, a laptop, a tablet, an internet connection, and they have been coerced and tricked at the other, other side of the camera into sharing indecent images and videos of themselves. And then that's, that finds its way onto child sexual abuse websites. On the show today, I'm talking to the CEO of the Internet Watch Foundation, Susie Hargreaves, OBE. We're talking to Susie to highlight the rise in online child abuse, which has been truly horrific during the pandemic. If any of the subjects in today's show strike a chord and you're a technology professional, you can get involved with the IWF and help them on their mission to remove child sexual abuse images from the internet. And there is a podcast from the IWF that you might want to also check out, Pixels from a Crime Scene. It's freely available on the IWF website and on any major podcast player. This is Tech Talks. It's your twice-weekly technology podcast with myself, David Savage, where we talk to leaders from across the industry and bring you some technology news. Welcome to today's show. I am joined by Hayley. Uh, Hayley, it's, this is going out last Friday before Christmas, seven days till Christmas. Um, shops are still open regardless of what tier you're in. Have you done all of your shopping? Yes, I have. And actually, do still need to go out and get a few bits, but I'm done. I can't wait. So you're not I'm... done? <laughs> no. I need to go get like... a few bits, but I'm done? Basically done, but like the fluffy little like bits, really. But I'm just so excited. I love Christmas. Who doesn't? Well, I know these people who are like I don't like Christmas. I'm like, why? It's amazing. How can you not? No, I'm I'm a big fan of Christmas. Uh, absolutely, um, not going to hide that. I, I <laughs> growing up, it was. I mean, for a start, my dad's a vicar, so it was like yeah. a thing in our house, the religious bit. And I do actually quite enjoy going to church on Christmas morning. Obviously, that's not happening, or at the very least, going on like Christmas Eve or going to a carol concert or something. So it's, it's a bit gutting that all of that all of that aspect of it is is not happening this year because. I like a little bit of religion at Christmas. Yeah, I guess even though my mood. wife is like, nah. Um, <laughs> I do love a carol con. I mean, who doesn't like a few Christmas carols, right? Well, like I like Christmas songs. Do they sing Christmas songs like "Snow <laughs> Is Falling." Do they sing that, or do they do actual like hymns? Well, no, carols. Carols are their own separate thing. Like oh, the Herald Angels sing and all that. Once in Royal David City. Yeah, I guess I could get involved with that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, right, tell you this. Um, went to a thing a couple of years ago. My wife won't, won't, won't enjoy me sharing this. Uh, we went to a, a pub sing-along a few years ago in my mum and dad's village, mm. and it was a carol sing-along. The entire pub was packed. My wife's always like, oh, hymns are so boring. Um, and she saw Mary's boy child was one of the one of the, one of of the the carols we were singing. And she got really confused because she thought Boney M did the original. She didn't realise it was a carol that Boney M then did a version of. It's like, yeah. No, that's not I an original that Boney M song. Oh, God. <laughs> I didn't know that either. No, Boney M didn't write Mary's Boy Child. It is a carol. Chicha, oh my, is born on Christmas Day. Love that one. <laughs> I don't even really know the words, but just kind of go with it. <laughs> oh, dear. Right, anyway. Um, well, I'm glad you're looking forward to Christmas. Uh, I am. And everyone else, I hope that you have your plans in place and despite the circumstances, are making the best of it. Um, today's interview is slightly, um, it's quite a serious topic, even by our standards for the show. Um, but it's really, it's one that I think is is really important to cover. Um, 
especially at this time of year when people might be getting new gadgets and, and new phones and new tablets. Uh, we're talking to Susie Hargreaves, OBE, who is CEO of the IWF. We'll hand over to the interview and then myself and Haley will be back with some commentary afterwards. So today I'm chatting to Susie Hargreaves, OBE, uh, CEO of the Internet Watch Foundation. Thanks for giving up some time and, and having a chat with us on the podcast today, Susie. Hello, David. Yes, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about the work of the IWF. Whereabouts are you based? You're, you're, are you up in Cambridge? Is that where the IWF is or is that where you are? Just out of interest. Uh, both. So I'm in Cambridge and the IWF is also based in Cambridge. And uh, we're kind of, we're, we're here for historic reasons in that we were set up by some early internet on, entrepreneurs who were based in Cambridge. Well, it's a very nice place. My sister went to the university, so I have a few fond memories of traipsing around it. I'm a bit younger than her, so I kind of, unfortunately for her, I think I just got dumped on her during half terms when my parents didn't know what to do with me, but it's a lovely place to be. Um, it is. It is. It's very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Look, um, before we get into anything else, I think it's worth kind of setting some context. Do you mind just telling us who the IWF are for anyone who's not familiar? Yes, yes, I'd be delighted. So the IWF was founded in 1996 and is the UK hotline for reporting and removing online child sexual abuse. Um, we're independent of law enforcement and the government, but we work very, very closely with them. But we're funded by the internet industry. So we have this unique relationship where we sit between industry and the government and law enforcement and other partners working in the space and our mission is the elimination of online child sexual abuse and when you talk about funding by the industry sorry how, how, how does that work is it kind of is it a membership so organizations who feel strongly about this guy how, how does it sorry just to understand exactly kind of how the organization i suppose is supported okay so when we were set up when the internet was really in the sort of early stages uh, the government started talking to the internet companies and saying to them look you know right. you you are you have to be responsible for the content that you're allowing to be shared on your networks mm. and the early internet company said look you know we don't want you to legislate the police were threatening to put them into prison they said look we'll set up an organization of our own and we will you know we will self-regulate and we will actually make sure we keep our platforms clean and we were set up as a result of that and at the time i think there were seven members there's only one still existing which is bt mm -hmm. um and we're now 155 members so they they fund us on membership fees so they pay between a thousand pounds a year up to eighty-two thousand pounds a year so and those members include some of the biggest companies in the world you know google amazon facebook microsoft Apple, uh, the, the big ISPs in the UK, the mobile operators, and a lot of filtering companies. So a whole range of companies that work on the internet. Some work in the mm. UK, some work internationally. So in work in lots of different ways, but they fund us principally. I think it might be worthwhile knowing that for some of the later conversation, perhaps. Um, Look, you, one of the topics that I know that you were keen to talk about was the fact that there has been an increase in self-generated content. Um, is that a trend that is particular to what's going on due to COVID or was that something that was happening regardless anyway and has possibly been exacerbated by the current situation? Well, it, it is a trend that I think has been exacerbated, but it was a trend that was increasing anyway, which is a really sort of scary situation. So just to, to give a sense of the, the content that we go after. So mm -hmm. we're going after illegal content. So child sexual abuse content, which is pretty much illegal 
across the world. And when I joined the IWF nine years ago, that year we removed 9,000 URLs. So that's a web page of child sexual abuse. And last year we removed 132,000 URLs. And each web page can have from one to 100 or 1,000 images on them. So we're talking about removing millions of images. And as we get more platforms to sh that can share this content and more ways of people being able to access the content through 4 or 5G, et cetera, around the world, we have more people online and more uh, ways to distribute it. So it's it's um, a growing problem regardless. But one of the, the key um, trends we've seen over the last few years is this massive increase in self-generated content. So, um, you know, in the last... Uh, since January this year, 44% of all the content we removed has been self-generated. And by that, we mean this is content where children are in their bedrooms and domestic settings. They've got a, a laptop, a tablet, an internet connection, and they have been coerced and tricked at the other, other side of the camera into sharing indecent images and videos of themselves. And then that's, that finds its way onto child sexual abuse websites. And it's a really shocking statistic, 44%. And we've seen a massive increase during lockdown because uh, more children have been at home online. So you can have a situation where children are at home, safe, in their bedrooms, or so the parents think, but they're actually totally unaware of the fact that they are sort of being uh, held as victims to these really nasty perpetrators who are just going out grooming and looking for them. So it's a real, real worry for us. It's, it's, I mean, it's that's a really tricky topic, isn't it? Because obviously not none of this is, is, is easy to talk about necessarily, but the, the fact that parents believe their children are safe at home, and I suppose they probably think they're more safe than they've ever been right now, and the, the opposite is perhaps true. Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely essential during COVID that we don't, you know, scare people more than they're scared because people sure. are, you know, are scared at the moment. And, but you know, what we what we want to do is try and get some messages around around sort of awareness raising and behaviour and ensure that children have age appropriate supervision when they're on the internet at home. I mean, I'm not suggesting that parents kind of sit and take away tablets of 17-year-olds, but it's clearly when 90% of the children we're seeing in the self-generated content are girls aged 11 to 13, then there's a clearly a supervision element required. And I think, you know, it's also a myth that this would affect children from certain, you know, um, you know, bands of society or whatever. This is across the board. We're seeing kids from, you know, all sorts of backgrounds in smart bedrooms and, you know, you know, less smart bedrooms and, and increasingly getting younger and younger. And there's one video I've seen where a child is, is a, it goes on for about an hour, this video. The child is, we've aged at 11, uh, engaged in category eight activity, which is the very worst level of activity. She's been asked to do stuff. And in the middle of the video, you hear someone shouting, dinner's ready. So, you know, and parents clearly, utterly unaware that the child is in that situation. So we mustn't uh, blame the children, but we must protect them. Is there something that could be done to help, I suppose, educate? There is an element, I suppose, that Parents didn't grow up with quite the same level of access to tech. If I think about it now, I'm I'm in my mid-30s. A lot of my friends now have infant children. Um, I suppose, and, and I, I was one of the very early people, I suppose, to have mobile phones available to me at school. And even then, they were incredibly basic pre-Nokia mobiles. So parents who've got, I suppose, children coming into 
puberty and that kind of age, probably this is an entirely different world. So I suppose part of it might have to be educating the children around what's safe and what they should be looking out for and how to protect themselves. Yeah, David, that's a, that's a really great point, you know, that we are we are a third of the UK safer internet centre with um, our partners, Childnet International, Southwest Grid for Learning, and we provide the hotline for re reporting and removing online child sexual abuse, but they provide awareness raising in schools and also a helpline for professionals. And we're all collectively looking at doing a, a major national campaign uh, targeting children and, and also separately targeting parents and carers because we need to actually get some messaging out in a way that's helpful to them and give people the support they need. But, you know, I think I kind of think personally that it's, it's not really okay anymore for people to say, well, I, I don't, you know, I didn't grow up with the internet. You know, I didn't grow up with the internet, but, you know, I, I understand that you still have a, a parental responsibility or a carer's responsibility to keep your kids safe. But, you know, like everything, we need to make sure that we don't sort of just, you know, <clears throat> pressurize people, but give them helpful advice and support them and being able to do that. But I think given that everybody knows about, you know, the potential dangers of being online now, because we hear stories all the day about tragic cases, okay. that actually you need to know what your children are doing if they're at home. You know, you need to know if they're online, what they're doing, but in, a, in an age-appropriate way, because I also think, and we see the worst possible content you can imagine on the internet. But I also think the internet is a fantastic tool as well. You know? So we need to give a really balanced, sensible approach to it. Yeah, well, let's be let's be uh, uh, positive in a very broadest sense. Without the internet, the last six months would have been much harder than they've been. So, um, yeah. Look, with regards to to your approach and how you uh, engage, not just industry, but law enforcement, et cetera. What, what is the approach that the RWF takes? Um, and is it fair to say that industry doesn't do enough? You know, I, I think I think when it comes to big tech and the big trends in terms of um, radicalization and so on and, and far-right videos, you know, there's, there's, there's this whole tranche where we, I think, have gotten into the habit of saying, oh, well, it's on big tech and they don't do enough and they have to self-police. Again, I suppose it might be easy for people to fall into that trap here and it might not be fair. Well, again, uh, it's it's a very broad subject. So we're dealing with child sexual abuse content, which, you know, I don't, it's, it's not sort of um, debatable whether that's a bad thing. You know, it's uh, it's not a subject to no, subjectivity. So, so, you know, so some of the online harms that people will debate and discuss, there is that element of, you know, whether it's freedom of speech or, or whatever. But when it comes to protecting children online, you know, I think the, the partnership approach is essential. So we provide a hotline for the public, not just in the UK, but in 42 countries now to report to a suspected child sexual abuse, because we want them to you know, if they stumble across child sexual abuse to do the right thing and report it to us so we can get that content removed. Um, we work very closely with the police so that um, in the UK, we, they, we have to contact them if we find any content hosted in the UK. Very little content is hosted in the UK, less than 0.1%. And I think what a lot of people don't realise about child sexual abuse is that you can have the content is created in one country hosted in another country and watched in many other countries. So so when we find content, we locate where it's hosted in the world and then we take steps to work with that country to get that content removed. 
Um, in relation to how we work with the police, if it's hosted in the UK, we have the permission to uh, issue a notice and take down so that they can, uh, we can ensure we don't disturb any possible investigations. The other way we work is we provide technical services to industry. So the industry across the world and the big industry companies will take some of our technical services to disrupt the distribution of child sexual abuse. So an example of this will be um, we have two, two, two of our products. One is called the, uh, the IWF URL list, which is a blocking list, which is of known child sexual abuse web pages, which are hosted in other parts of the world and are still live. Well, that goes out across the world. You're, David, I'm sure you're, you've probably got our, it's a default in the UK, so you'll have your home will be filtered by our blocking list. And if people accidentally stumble on that, or if they attempt to um, go on a URL that's on our blocking list, they get a warning page telling them what they're doing. Um, and that is deployed across the world. Google, Microsoft deploy it across the world. And it has typically around 7,000 live web pages on every day. It's cleaned every day. People will say the best way to remove content is to remove it at source. So actually take it off the internet. And that is the best way. Unfortunately, we can't always do that. So we have to put in lots of technical solutions to block it and prevent the distribution. Another way we try and deal with it is we deploy the IWF hash list. And this is a fantastic tool. So about two years ago, uh, we were started to use PhotoDNA, which is a, um, a, a hashing tool which enables us to put a digital fingerprint on a known image of child sexual abuse. And then we can go out and search the internet for matches using our own crawlers but we can also provide that list to industry so that if you try and upload a known image of child sexual abuse, which is on our hash list, to one of their platforms, it will have an automatic match and then it will be uh, reported. So that's a fantastic tool. And it's particularly fantastic because it grows every time because uh, and the, today it has about 550,000 uh, unique images on. But most images out there in circulation are duplicates. So take the young woman that I met in the States a couple of years ago, now in her 20s, been rescued when she was 12. She knows that one of her images has been shared over 70,000 times. So the hash list can actually go out and search for some of those duplicates. So those are some examples of tech tools that we use. And they're deployed with the support and cooperation of industry. And to answer, it's a very long answer to your question, which is, can no, industry no. do more? And the answer is, yes, of course, industry can do more. We can do more. Police can do more. We can all do more because we are fighting an ever-growing problem. But, you know, so I don't think any of us will sit there and be complacent until we've removed all this. But in terms of our work and child sexual abuse, we work very closely with industry and they will take our services. because They don't want child sexual abuse on their platforms. How much support do you get around innovation and innovative tools from industry? I suppose those partnerships are key, right? Yeah, I mean, we are incredibly lucky in the sense that not only are we funded by them, we also um, we've uh, benefited from uh, uh, engineers in residence from, say, Google and Microsoft. Mm. Um, we often have hackathons where 
industry will send engineers and we will say, look, we've got this particular problem and they will all get in a room over a weekend and come up with technical solutions for us. You know, we're really happy that we can call upon some of the best technical expertise in the world. And that's that's fantastic. So, you know, that that's a real, you know, sort of added benefit to what we have. We're currently getting a lot of support from Amazon Web Services in terms of processing power, you know, so it just varies. Different companies provide us with different levels of support. One thing that I've noticed uh, throughout the course of this interview is you keep talking about child abuse, sexual child sexual abuse, as opposed to child pornography. And I absolutely uh, freely admit that there's nuances here that I am ignorant of. But it's interesting to hear you definitely talk about child sexual sexual abuse as opposed to child pornography. And I suppose a lot of people might use the term child pornography. I noticed that is something that you feel as an organization it's particularly important that people understand that this is not you know that that, that is not a phrase that's acceptable yeah that's that's absolutely right um, it is called child pornography and cp in some parts of the world and you'll hear people say things like kiddie porn and and for us that's really quite an offensive uh, phrase because it um minimizes the um abuse that children suffer as part of this crime so basically you know pornography is legal in the uk and child sexual abuse is illegal and by calling it child pornography you legitimize what is in effect an illegal mm. act and i think you know there is also the myth that you know by looking at child sexual abuse you're not really committing a crime because you're not actually you're not actually hurting a child by but you know all all the evidence shows that children who are sexually abused and their images are shared online they you know they are you know vict you know victims of um, multiple of offenses the crime itself and then the the fact that they are also knowing that their images out there and every time they walk down the street someone might have looked at them and that sort of feeling of you know actual powerlessness and I've talked to victims who said to me you know survivors who said to me it's not just that you 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 had to go through it in the first place and often by someone you knew um that but actually you feel physically scared the whole time so so what we do is we actually say, look, this is a real crime. These are real children. They were really sexually abused. And every time you look at it, you re-victimize that child. And then if you sort of belittle that experience by calling it kiddie porn or something, that that provides further damage to that child. Mm. So, you know, they've already had their childhood robbed from them in many, many circumstances. So it's our way of respecting their position and, and ensuring that people understand the gravity of the crime. Yeah, absolutely. Look, one last quick point then. Um, what what are the projects coming up? What what are you looking to do um, as this interesting new world uh, evolves around us, and how you're you're planning to tackle uh, the, the problem moving forward? Well, we've got loads of fantastic projects that we're working on at the moment. So we have. Um, uh, we've got a chatbot in development, which we've got a major funding for, which will uh, we're working with a whole host of partners on that. So developing the tech to put a chatbot into uh, adult sites and into child sexual abuse sites to try and deter people when they go to those sites to seek help for their behavior. We've got another project going on with um Report Remove, we're working with the NSPCC for young people, older young people, to self-refer suspected images of child sexual abuse of themselves, which they can report without fear of being criminalized, so we can help them get those removed. We have a fantastic tech program going on in terms of our internal tech. So 
We have crawlers that crawl the internet. We're developing classifiers to help us identify possible child sexual abuse, so using machine learning. We're developing a whole new DevOps uh, platform so that external engineers can come in and work on a mirrored platform to what we're working on. And we're constantly looking at anything we can do to innovate and stay one step ahead of the perpetrators. And some of these projects, are, you know, they're fantastic. You know, you sort of feel like, you you know, we can really make an impact in terms of what we're trying to do and growing our hash list and, and sharing it with as many international partners as we can. So, so many things. If there if there is an opportunity for people in industry who listen and care and want to help, is there a way that people on an individual basis can help? I mean, I know it's a membership organisation, as you said, over 140 members, but you mentioned as well that obviously you get a lot of help from engineers within those organisations. Can engineers from, from anywhere who go, you know, this is something I care about get involved? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, we, we love people to get involved and especially if they're really skilled engineers, obviously we have loads of checks and balances around who works with us for obvious reasons. Yeah, of course. Uh, but yeah, get in touch with us. Uh, uh, have a look at our website, iwf.org.uk and there's contact details on there. If it's a tech industry organisation, we would love you to work with us to join our family of members. You know, not everybody takes our services. Some people just do it because it's the right thing to do to support us. We have all sorts of members. You can, you know, we are a charity. We're a not-for-profit organization. And and the truth is, you know, we have now uh, 20 analysts. But, you know, if we had more money, we could have more analysts and we could take more content down. That's the reality of yeah. it. So, but, you know, so... Uh, we would love people to do it. And, but the most important thing you take away from this is please take away a zero tolerance approach to child sexual abuse. And, you know, it's, it, it, you know, just just getting people to talk about it a bit more it would be really helpful because it's not an easy subject to talk about, but it's very important we do. Susie, I want to thank you very much for your time today uh, to, to cover this topic. Um, and fingers crossed, you do manage to take down many more of those images. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. I think I think the thing that struck me about this, I've got to be really careful, right? Because Susie says in the interview that it's important that we don't scare people. Agreed. Right. But it's that realisation that there are so many children now at home, on a on a laptop, on a tablet, because they can't go to school, and parents are busy doing their jobs. And I suppose where there might have been actually thinking, you know, because I say in the interview, well, they're probably more safe than they've ever been, but actually they're probably spending more time unsupervised online alone than they've ever spent uh, because parents are having to get on with their work and children are online where they would normally be in school. And yes, they are probably in school, but it's very easy to have one or two tabs open. It's probably very easy for for for, for, for young people to get um distracted and if there are predators out there who are trying to influence young people that is a concern and it's something that yeah we don't want to scare people but parents carers have got to be aware of this and find a way to be able to monitor and keep keep young people safe yeah i know i think as a parent you probably wouldn't it's the last thing you kind of think your your child's doing upstairs isn't it Mm. Um, and that's when I thought you made a good point when you said like our parents aware to this extent but then I then she came back and she said well there's not really an excuse not to be aware now and it's so true and that is the world we live in unfortunately yeah you have to be 
aware of these awful, awful things and not rule yourself out because it's, it's even when I was younger, used to have like platforms like Habbo Hotel and things like that. And they're like, you have like little chat rooms, like it's like a little game. Um, and even on there, like you have like, it's not, you can't physically see the person, but they're writing weird things. And I remember like even my friends, we talk about it now and we say like, it's a bit weird. Like when you think back, think back it's really strange, like what people were saying. So it's just happening without you even realising. And I remember those times, even now. Um, so yeah. it's obviously been around, it's always been around, right? Um, and you just, as a, when you're a child, you just don't understand what's going on. It's so sad that they're getting taken advantage of. Yeah, and, and look, I mean, the truly shocking statistics, there are many truly shocking statistics in this, but 90% are girls aged 11 to 13 across society. Yeah. You know, I think at one point Susie says um, something along the lines of, you know, we don't want to take tablets off 17-year-olds, but 90% 11 to 13-year-olds. And it it must be difficult for parents, you know? Um, on the one hand... Think think about back if I think back to, to when I was a kid, you're desperate to be um not the odd one out. You Ooh. don't want anything different about you as a kid. Um and when your friends start getting stuff, be it computer games, I mean it wasn't mobile phones for me because I'm just a bit too old. Um <laughs> I think my first phone was when I was 16 and it was a Philips Savvy and it was massive and it held like 10 text messages. Yeah. Um but now there is that pressure you know i can see it in my goddaughter who's who's um uh, 14 years old she's on instagram and all of her friends are on and they post stories all the time um and there would be that pressure that if she wasn't on instagram it would be something that would be but all of my friends are and i don't want to be the one that's left out and i i want to fit in as much as anything yeah, and so the pressure is on parents to give access to kids to not you know and Obviously, it's a dilemma for them, and it, it must be so hard. Because if I think back to my mum and dad, well, basically, they either knew if I was at home or if I was out. And when you're out, it's like, don't talk to strangers, don't do this, don't do that. But it's it's pretty black and white and a bit more binary and a bit easier to to keep your child safe than it is now. I know. Like, if, I think I think now, like even like my nieces and nephews and everyone like that, they've all got like iPads. Yeah, I mean they're extremely lucky, but if they've got all of that at their fingertips, and it's it's crazy, and obviously like you're, you can get like parental guidance and things like that on those sort of things as well, which is so important, I think. Um, but yeah, it's just, well, how do you control that? Say if you've got three kids, how are you controlling what every each and every single one of them is doing? Which you need to though. Yeah, yeah, and look, I mean, it's it's a really old episode now, but. In the early days of Tech Talks, we had um, Douglas from uh, Azumi on, which is, it's like a, a safe environment for children to get used to games, educational games and so on, uh, on tablets, uh, and kind of like a precursor to them then upgrading to the internet. And it's yeah. specifically designed at young children to help teach them digital norms in a safe way. And you you hear the horrendous stats that someone like Susie puts across, and you totally understand why that kind of a of an approach of saying because because exactly to the points that we've just been making, you can't say no. So therefore, mm. you have to. I think it's important that you educate from an early age and and make sure that young people, because they are entering a world that is uniquely 
or sorry, very different from from the one that, that I grew up in, that they've got some understanding of norms and of behaviours from a very early age and, and educating them and upskilling them, which might seem really bizarre if you're talking about five and six-year-olds, is yeah. necessary. Well, it's like when I remember when I was in primary school, right, and you get told, like, stranger danger, like, and you get taught about that. But now, the age they're at now, it's going to be learning about that risk. Yeah. rather than at, well, as well as do you know what i mean so and i suppose that's the only way online. you can do it right course, that's the only way yeah. you can do it you, you you can't scare adults you can't go no you can't have these things that's not a long-term solution so it's got to be about you've got to be aware of this stuff what can you do with your kids to prepare them to educate them to try and yeah. make sure that they are protected because there's going to be a lot of it this this content is self-generated so a lot of it has got to be giving them the tools to be able to cope with the situations I know, definitely. And also, when she made that stat, so nine years ago, I, she said that they they, uh, they dealt with 900, no, no 9,000 URLs, and then last year, 132,000. I was like, is it getting worse then, or are they just getting better at, you know, like, dealing with it? But that's like a massive jump, isn't it? Yeah. I was, yeah. Like, I was like, oh, gosh. It's, it's quite, it's sickening, to be honest, isn't yeah. it? And look, um, one thing I wanted to say, and I'll amalgamate a bit of tech news, rather than having a tech news section today, um, there is uh, in the papers at the minute the chat from the EU with their Digital Services Act with a 6% um, fine if liabilities are broken by internet, um, uh, kind of the Facebooks and the Googles of the world. And then there's the online harms law, um, which is a very similar bill going through UK law at the minute, um, which should which should be a 10% fine of revenue, of global revenue. And big tech rightly is under the microscope and does get uh, questioned about its role in our online world, right? And there is a lot there around, you know, the, the stance, of, the stance of, a, of, a, of a Google or whatnot has always been that someone, that their users uh, generate the, the, the content that's being uploaded online and therefore it's not their issue, and the regulation that's trying to catch up is saying, no, you have some responsibility for what's being uploaded on your platforms. Now, it's a slightly different subject from what we're talking about here, but it is great to, to find these stories actually where tech organizations, I'm going to talk positively about them, whilst, whilst not just diminishing from what they're trying to do with the DSA and the online harms law, but brilliant to hear Susie talk very positively about engineers and residents from the likes of Google and Microsoft working for them pro bono, hackathons where... Um, the IWF are able to talk about the real issues that they have and get access to some of the best tech talent in the world. And when she talks about AWS, you know, giving them um, computing power, you know, really positives there. Obviously, as this is something that is is black and white, it's it's wrong and, and needs support. But it is positive to hear tech actually coming uh, to the fore and helping this organisation to combat this issue. A hundred percent. And it's, it's going to be a, a multitude of things, isn't it? It's going to be the tech firms taking a bit of control, um, the awareness from the public. And I think if you, if you, it shouldn't be happening in the first place. Right. And I, I even think to myself, how is this even an issue? Like, how is this actually a thing that has to be dealt with? It shouldn't be, but it is. And that's the reality of our world. But it's just amazing to see that there are things that can be done now. Um, to try, try and help minimise it at least. And the awareness going out to everyone, even like the awareness just from people listening to this podcast is going to be great. So 
Yeah, um, fingers crossed on that front. Fingers crossed, yeah, ending on positive. Yeah, and look, if you are an engineer, uh, we mentioned this uh, at yeah. the end of the of the interview with Susie, um, if you're an engineer and you want to help, you can. This is something mm. which can be a community effort to help make sure that the internet is a safe place for young people and free of abuse. Exactly. And there'll be a lot of engineers out there who are parents and everything like that. And they want to know how they can help. And, and I think this is a great opportunity. Yeah. Look, Hayley, thank you for your time. I'm tackling a fairly sober subject, but uh, one that, that, that I feel that we need to. On a more upbeat note, it is nearly Christmas, seven days, as we said at the start of the show. Exactly. Get your last little bits. And you said you were done and you're obviously not. Are you done? Uh, Christmas, yes. But that's only because my wife does all of it. So I only have to sort out (laughs) her. Uh, But it is my sister's 40th on the 28th. And I'll be perfectly honest, I'm not entirely sure if we've got that sorted. And being the 40th, we we probably should. So I might need to double check that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You need to push Mm. the boat out for that one. It's really weird thinking that my sibling will be 40. Anyway, uh, that's a conversation for another day. Uh, (laughs) Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. Um